Okay, let's go back to Romans 9. What do you say? Romans 9, and I want to read you the first three verses again. And uh, we'll get moving. And um, um, somebody who wasn't a, um, a member of this church asked one of the members, he said, well, uh, uh, why'd you fire that guy? And um, the member said, well, he kept telling us we were going to hell. And um, he said, well, um, what does your new pastor say? What, what is your new pastor saying? He says, well, he keeps telling us we're going to hell too. And so the guy who wasn't the member said, well, then, then what's the difference? And the uh, church member said, well, when our first pastor said we were going to hell, uh, he sounded like he was glad. But when the second pastor says we're going to hell, he sounds like his heart's breaking. I mean, I hope you can get the point. The point is, it's hard to receive one of those, any hard truth. But there's so much better chance of hearing it when it's said in love, guys. And that's what you see the Apostle Paul doing. Um, guys, think about this just for a minute. He is, he is speaking with such courtesy, such respect, such kindness, such empathy, such love for these people... And these are the people who considered him an enemy. They considered him a traitor. I mean, this was a Jew, Paul, who had, you know, kind of gone over to the other side. And everywhere Paul went, read the book of Acts, everywhere Paul went, Jews stirred up trouble for him. They followed him around from, from town to town. And he'd, you know, he'd preach the gospel in this town and they'd cause a big ruckus and he'd have to flee from that town and he'd go to another town. And sure enough, they'd show up over there. Guys, on, on one occasion, um, it got so bad that a group of Jews, this is, you don't need to turn here, but in, um, in Acts chapter 23, let me read you this. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. It got so bad that a, that a group of them made a pact that they wouldn't eat or drink until they had killed him. Uh, on another occasion in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, again, don't, don't turn, but he says, um, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews... The forty lashes less one. Um, on uh, yeah, on freak, uh, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers from my own people, dangers in the wilderness, dangers at sea, danger from false brothers. Now, guys, my my, my point is this: um, as you as you read this section and as we study this section together, one of the things that ought to really stand out is that this man, who was hated, they caused him trouble, they followed around and tried to overturn everything that he was saying, a group of them finally got together and said, we're going to bond together and kill him, and then they, on five different occasions, beat him to within an inch of his life. It is that man who says, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. I mean, it's a heck of a statement anyway. But then when you consider it's those people who had done this to him, when you think those are the people that he's talking about. 
Very impressive. You know, guys, um, is there any bit of anguish in your soul over the fact that there are lost men and women all around you? Um, Do men's lostness concern us at all? I'll tell you what, let's make it just a tad more personal. How about homosexuals? That's a group that white Anglo-Saxon Protestants, good East Memphis white Anglo-Saxon Protestants really seem to think are just... Is there any concern over the lostness of those? How about this? Does the lostness of your enemies stir you? How about this? Muslims. Gang, how do we explain a man who can say something like that? How do we explain this obvious sentiment on the part of the Apostle Paul? What's worse, how do we explain the absence of it in us? That's why I changed my mind. I don't think it's a small observation. I think it's a huge one. And you see it all through these three chapters, how he groans and aches over people who had tried to kill him. Something to keep in mind, guys, as we, uh, as we look at Romans 9. Okay, look at verse 1, and we'll start trying to pick it apart. But um, he says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. First of all, I would I just want to point out how he Paul mentions Christ and Holy Spirit in the same sentence. You know, one of the things that uh, that we still fight these days is the deity of Christ and the deity of the Holy Spirit. Uh, various cults pick one of those and, and deny the deity of either the second person of the Trinity or the third person. Uh, Paul uh, very subtly suggests their, their deity here in verse 1. But I, I want you to notice the role of conscience in telling the truth. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness. Um, guys, I love to talk about the conscience. I love to talk about the conscience because it's a, it's a wonderful thing. <laughs> um, Susie and I were talking about it last night. Uh, I have been in a situation last Tuesday, uh, eight days ago, where... Um, I, I'm on a committee, a, a presbytery, and this committee, uh, its its responsibility is to oversee ministers who have done bad things. <laughs> Unfortunately, we have a few meetings to go to every year, but the most recent one that I went to is um, uh, is last Tuesday, where uh, one professional clergyman has been in an affair for two and a half years. And um, the details are just awful, and and it just it just really upsets me uh, in in ways that I don't think you understand me. I mean, I I have something that goes on inside of me. I mean, just uh, anyway. So I was saying to Susie last night, you know, I've got enough sin that people know about, you know, that my wife knows about. But the Apostle Paul says the goal of our instruction is love uh, um, from a sincere heart and a pure conscience. 
You know, guys, it, it's one thing to stand before you and, you know, talk about truth. Uh, it, you knowing that, gosh, he's, he's got an acidic tongue and, I mean, he's not exactly the most humble guy I've ever met. And, uh, you know, that's, that's bad enough. But to stand here and speak to you with my conscience aching, I don't know that I could tell you the truth if my conscience was... You know, guys, um, in Genesis chapter 3, uh, g- gang, the reason I love to talk about conscience because there's so much to say about it, but, um, but one, one of the things that you can say about conscience is that it is uh, one of the evidences and one of the proofs of the existence of God. Let me tell you how. Genesis chapter 3, uh, Adam and Eve having a great time there in the garden and they disobey. What happens next? It's the conscience that begins to operate. Guys, your conscience is independent of you. God stuck it in there. How did it get there? How did your conscience get there? In fact, ladies and gentlemen, your greatest enemy has nothing to do with me. It has nothing to do with the Bible. Your greatest enemy is is your own conscience. Something stuck in there by the living God. Now, I will say, it's not infallible. Consciences are not infallible. They have to be trained. They have to be trained by the Scriptures. But the existence of conscience... Guys, do you know the story? It's in Genesis 42, I think. where um, You remember the story about uh, uh, um, Joseph? That stupid, stupid kid who used to come back and tell his brothers about, hey, I had a dream the night, and the dream had all you guys worshiping me. (laughs) That's stupid. I mean, if he'd have had the dream, he ought to have kept it to himself. But he came back and told his brothers, and his brothers said, well, goodness gracious, we're going to do something about him. Uh, We're going to have to kill him. You know, they do. They throw him in the pit, and they, you know, sell him off into the yada, 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 and then he goes down there and has a problem with Potiphar's wife, and then he ascends to the top of the, you know, you got the famine over here, and then the brothers come. What a, what, a, what a lesson in conscience. It's, it's chapter 42, I want to say verse 21, if you ever want to look at it. But um, the brothers come in there, and they don't know the guy that's up in the, uh, up in the top up there is, um, uh, is their brother. He's speaking Egyptian, and he's got a beard now. And, you know, he's gained a little weight. And they don't know who he is. He's got one of those strange things on. And, uh, you know, they don't know he's uh, Joseph, the one that he sold. And, and, um, and, the, and they have a problem. You know, they take their weed out, and they go off to their country, and... And uh, they open their sacks, and there's, there's money. And they're thinking, oh, how did we get our money? And so they go back, on, you know, and, and they're standing in front of the same guy. And one of the brothers hits one. He says, you know why this is happening, don't you? You know why we're having this trouble, don't you? It's because we sold our brother. Gang, that's 20 years later. The conscience is still operating. Still operating. You can't run from it. You know, I, I love to tell this story, uh, um, one of Edgar Allan Poe's short stories. You may have read it. About the guy, the title of it is The Telltale Heart. The guy murders this guy. And he buries him on the, under the floor uh, in his living room. And the police come by to, to check on this, uh, this homicide, and they, they can't find the body. And they're, you know, they're walking over the guy, and he's right under there, you know, he's dead in a doornail, and, and they're just walking all over him, and hey, you know, I don't know what happened, officer, you know. And then, um, then the officers leave, and, and he begins to hear this thump, thump, thump. 
and it's very, very light, uh, very quiet at the beginning. And he thinks he hears the heart beating down there. And then as time goes by, it gets louder. Thump! 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 And then finally it's thump! Thump! And it's so loud it drives him crazy. You know what Edgar Allan Poe's saying, don't you? He's trying to describe the operation of the conscience. He's trying to say you can run from here to Timbuktu, but it goes with you. It's the, um, it's the thing that proves that there is a God who made you. Because there's this inner, this inner moral voice that tells you you have done wrong. Gang, if there is no God, there is no such thing as having done wrong. Because you're just the product of some naturalistic forces and it's the survival of the fittest. But this thing that troubles you and keeps you up at night is an evidence and a proof of the existence of God. And Paul says, I'm telling you the truth. I don't lie. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. I, I'm, I'm speaking these words realizing that I'm in the presence of God. So he, that's, that's how he starts. He starts by telling you, I'm telling you the truth. So the truth that he tells us is, I have great sorrow. I have great sorrow and unceasing, unceasing anguish in my heart. And, and by the way, that anguish is there because of his brothers, not according to the, to the Spirit. That is, you know, we're brothers and sisters. But he, he makes that clear in verse 3. For I could wish that I myself were a curse and cut off from... For the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. That is, Jews. He's speaking of Jews. And instead of hating them, you know, what do you feel? Tell me. What do you feel about those 19 terrorists uh, that hijacked those planes on 9-11? Huh? You want to see them rotten hell? Well... I can't say that I haven't shared your sentiment, but, but I mean, it's so dang impressive that the Apostle Paul, for people who had beat him five times, instead of hating them because of the wrongs done by them to him, here's what we find him saying. I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. You know, guys, um, if there was not another commandment in all of the Scriptures, if that's all we had, if that's the only moral standard that we had, we would have failed miserably. Just that one. Now, guys, I must tell you that verse 3 has caused a great deal of ink to be spilt most of which I had to read. Because I'm telling you, you are reading verse 3 thinking Paul's saying he wish he could go to hell for them. And I want to tell you, I don't think that's what he's saying. Um, no Christian can, I think, or ever would ever 
would ever say that. And let me tell you why. That anybody who understands the gospel of Jesus Christ would never say that. Because it is to suggest that if I could go to hell for them, then that would mean they could be delivered. Ladies and gentlemen, I could go to hell for you, and you're still, I mean, if you're on your, it's not going to change anything. Paul's going to hell for them is not, is not going to change a thing. Because they're not saved by Paul's dying for them. They're saved by Jesus' death. Or men are saved by Jesus' death. But here's something I want you to notice. And I know this is a tad technical, but um, this is why we study the Bible. I, I don't know about your translation, but my translation does it very well. The Greek verb in verse 3 is in the imperfect tense. Now, guys, my translation, again, I don't know what yours says, but mine says, for I could wish that I myself were accursed. That's, that is reflective of the imperfect tense. And what Paul is saying is, I could wish, were, were such a thing proper, were such a thing appropriate, were such a thing possible, were such a thing allowable, I could have wished that. But in the imperfect tense, the, 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 the communication is, he realizes it's not possible. Paul is not wishing himself to be an outcast from God so that, but it's like the thought crosses his mind, but he knows better. And so he stops in the midst of such a foolish thought, and he says, I could have wished, but I know that's not proper. I know that's not possible. And that's why you find the verb in the imperfect tense. Paul is not pleading or wanting to die in their place. Paul's dying in their place wouldn't help them at all. That's why I don't think that's what he's saying. Now, um, guys, before we hasten away from these three verses, um, uh, and I know that some of you are fairly eager to get on with this so that we can get over to verse 14 so that we can argue. Um, and uh, unfortunately, when people open Romans 9, that's just about the only thing they see, which I think is a tad unfortunate. But before we uh, run away from verses 1 through 3, uh, I, I, want, I, want, I want to draw three deductions, um, three lessons, three applications, three insights, whatever you want to call them. I would say the best word is three deductions from, from those three verses, three things that you can deduce about what you've just heard. But first of all, before I get to those three, gang, um, I, I just want to warn you that the Bible is never to be studied academically. I, I'll explain. But do you know that there are Christian institutions across America, I don't, there's not many, but there's Christian that uh, oppose in their Christian education ever testing anyone's biblical knowledge. Um, they don't want to test biblical knowledge because what that does is say, once you are um, uh, in possession of the academic facts, you've got enough. And I'm telling you, ladies and gentlemen, that kind of, 
that, that, that mindset that this thing is to be known academically, it's a very short road from there to what is known as antinomianism. Uh, I, I've used this word before, anti, against, nomos, um, is law. It's Now, that's not my fault. That's the computer's fault. That, that is a miracle. Uh, uh, <laughs> you didn't know that I had that ability, did you? And do it so fast, too. <laughs> Watch this. Uh, <laughs> Jimmy. Um, all right, well, for, okay, Jason, <laughs> this one's on you, buddy. Uh, okay, um, the, the, um, the mindset in evangelicalism is, I'm going to go to another Bible study, I'm going to learn me another Bible fact, I'm going to figure out how many gallons of water are in the Dead Sea, and I'm going to leave the Bible study with the sense that I have really had a spiritual experience. That is very dangerous, ladies and gentlemen. It's not far from there to antinomianism, and antinomianism is simply this. As long as I know it, uh, that'll, be, that'll be quite enough. And that ain't enough, ladies and gentlemen. What you know is supposed to seep out of your head and down to your heart and overtake your will. And until it does overtake your will, you know nothing. So, the Bible is never to be studied so that we can figure out the tense of the Greek verbs. The tense of the Greek verbs and all that exegesis helps you understand what is said so that it will grab a hold of your heart and then once overtake your will. Once it's done that, we've studied the Bible together. Um, but now, let me close with my three deductions. First of all, I hope you um, sense or can see that the gospel is something that divides and separates. Guys, what is it that separated this accomplished Jew, Paul, from all the other Jews that now became his enemies? You know what it was, don't you? It was the gospel. He embraced it, and they didn't. And that embracing of the gospel created an enormous division between him and the rest of Judaism. Gang, this, this Pollyanna notion that Christianity somehow abolishes all the divisions and brings peace on earth, that's nonsense. In fact, the Lord Jesus himself is the one that said, I came to bring not peace, but a sword. You know he said that, don't you? Yeah, Jesus said that. And, and, and the division made by that sword is so profound that the most intimate of all of life's relationships are sometimes divided. Look at Luke 14 where... Where Jesus says, if you love mother and father more than me and all that business. Guys, um, I, I don't think I'm alone in this, in this experience. But um, you become a Christian and you find yourself more closely related to strangers than you are your own family members. Because the gospel has wooed you to people who embrace it. 
and has divided you from people who reject it. And you see it taking place in the Apostle Paul. That is a deduction, guys. That is, you see it happening in Paul. And that's what the gospel... I don't want to say it has the potential to do it. It's not the potential. It does it every time. It's in its essence. It's in its nature. That it divides from those who spurn it. The proclamation of the gospel is brings about division. The other thing that I, I've already said some of this um, in terms of deduction, but I, I, I want to reiterate as we close. Um, even though I am separated and divided from those who have not embraced this Savior of mine, that is, let me, let me take Paul. Even though he was separated from these people who have rejected the same Christ that he embraced, you notice in him that he still has this, this profound concern for those people who haven't come with him in terms of embracing the Savior. Um, I say to you again, guys... Has your embracing this Savior, has it somehow manifested itself in a heightened concern for people who haven't embraced it? Do I have anything close to a concern for people who have not embraced this Savior of mine? Listen to me. If not, then something is very seriously wrong about your understanding of this message. We exist for them. The other thing is just another part of that. When I tried to examine my own attitudes towards lost people, and um, <laughs> Susie and I were given some tickets to the UT Memphis game on Saturday. And, um, you know, at the second half, everybody was real nice and sweet because Tennessee was up 25 points or whatever. But, I mean, before the game started, there was tension. Well, two things. Um, uh, we, had, we had some good seats, um, and we had seats 18 and 19. And um, <laughs> I had gone out to, I think, go to the bathroom before the game started. We had seats 18 and 19, but we happened to be sitting in 17 and 18. And so I come back to the, from the bathroom, and my wife is, <laughs> this woman walks up to my wife and says, move it, honey. <laughs> and she told me that, and I said, oh, I wish she'd have said that to me. <laughs> I could have been unemployed by that evening. <laughs> 
But anyway, you know, but, but that was one incident. But then, you know, the game, you know, kind of got out of hand. And a guy behind me was drunk. So drunk that, you know, I'm sitting in my chair. He, he basically passes out and he rests his head on my back. And I and I turned around like, get your. I mean the guy's just. And I said to Susie, I said, this guy's about to throw up all over me. And she said, let's get out of here. So we we moved down a couple of rows. But I mean, <laughs> guys, um, what's your attitude towards folks like that? Annoyed. I had that one. Uh, Contemptuous, mm, I had that one too. Uh, irritated, mm-hmm. Uh, impatient, boy, you betcha. Uh, a fair degree of, you say that to me, lady, I'm going to take your head off. Now compare that with what you read coming out of the mouth of a man who was beaten five times by his enemies. Ladies and gentlemen, I leave you with this. Why do they reject the gospel? Think about that for a second. But then this. Why did you receive it? Do you know the difference between them and us? It is the sovereign work of God the Holy Spirit in us. Do you know why you've embraced this Savior of ours? Why we have? Because God the Holy Spirit opened our eyes to see His beauty. And should He see fit to open His eyes, He won't be throwing up on the guy in row 52. He'll be out here studying the Bible with us. Our Father, I do pray that you will remind your people of what you expect of us towards lost men. An expectation that has gone incredibly unmet on the part of the pastor of this church. And I pray, O God, that you will have mercy on us, forgive us, uh, remind us that the reason that we are who we are is because of your sovereign grace. Remind us that our eye, that we were probably drinking just as much beer and, and leaning our heads on just as many backs until we met the, the Savior. And um, we pray, O oh God, that you will make this church downright sacrificial in terms of how we spend our money and how we spend our time in the hopes that that young man, along with billions of Chinese and Indians, might have a, a chance to hear somebody tell them about the completed work of Jesus Christ for sinners. Work that in us, Father, because it ain't there now. 
We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Thanks and good night.